Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 103 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I am your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode, listener discretion is advised. I don't know how sensitive a lot of people's ears are, but I mean, there's some pretty, it's not too gruesome to where I wanted to put it behind the paywall, but it is a little much. But today's episode, we're going to learn about the Hillside Strangler. I've I've heard about the Hill, Hillside Strangler off and on throughout my life, but now that I'm I'm obsessed with cold case files and serial killers here in the last little while, I want to make sure that I cover some of the most notorious cases. Again, Ted Bundy will not be on the podcast because fuck Ted Bundy. So who are the Hill? Who see? I already messed up. I already gave it away. So obviously there was more than one Hillside Strangler. For those of you who don't know, there was two of them. They were they worked as in unison tag team partners, and there was two Hillside Stranglers. So. Who are the Hillside Stranglers? For many years, it was believed that the the Hillside Strangler was just one man, but eventually emerged that two men were responsible for the vicious crimes, Kenneth Bianchi and his cousin, Angelo Buno. Now, I don't care about their names. I I don't really try to pronounce their names. I'm not, if I fuck it up, I fuck it up. That's just how it is right now. A lot of serial killers, if you notice that, I don't really care if I get their names right because they don't deserve that respect. Between October 1977 and February 1978, the pair murdered and raped 10 innocent women and girls, callously leaving their bodies in the hills surrounding L.A., Los Angeles. Both men came from disturbed backgrounds. When he was a teenager, Buno, oh, excuse me, Buno became obsessed with sex and boasted to his classmates that he raped many girls. So we already mentioned before that whenever there's, there's a, a, a shift in the dynamics of at home, that a lot of people suffer and a lot of people feel the wrath of these young individuals, woman or, or, or man, it doesn't matter. Girl, boy, it doesn't matter. If there is something off about what's going on at the house, especially abuse, especially neglect, there's going to be some sort of disassociative behavior that's going to be cemented and groomed into this child. We also read and hear about a lot of sociopaths. I've said it over and over and over on the podcast. There are plenty of, of examples, plenty of states case studies proving that sociopathic tendencies are are nurtured and groomed at an early age. Apparently, we're all capable of being sociopath. It just depends on how we're wired and raised as young as youngins. It's going to determine if we're going to be able to live a non-murderous, fulfilled life, or are we going to have a fulfilled life full of murdering, rape, and, and other atrocities involved in that in that type of, of upbringing. The older cousin, Angelo, is believed to have acted as a sort of a role model for the younger cousin, Kenneth, and subsequently was able to sway him. The child of divorced parents, Buno was raised by his mother, but from even an early age, Buno seemed to have loathed women. You know, I, I was trying to dig deeper into that, but I, I was running out of time. I did my radio show earlier, and I, I, I found a few interesting little pieces here and there. I found that the mother was very was very horrible to these kids to to Buno Buono but B U B O U A B U O N O Buono I just say Buno and because of the way his mother treated him the way that he saw his mother and the way that other men treated his mother he grew and and formed his own loathe for women he hated women so much based off of how he was raised and treated by the women by the important women in his life now. I read this several times before where 
that is actually a very large factor that's going to that's going to help shape and form the way this individual is going to attack and what type of serial killer he's going to be. We saw it with Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. The Richard Ramirez had no regard for women, and that was all because of the indoctrination and and the uh, the uh, the teachings that his brother from Vietnam, or excuse me, his cousin from Vietnam, gave to Richard Ramirez. Richard Ramirez was actually one of those. He was an abused child as well. His mother didn't love him pretty much, and his his cousin stepped in and was his role model. And his cousin shared the horrible murder rapes that he committed in Vietnam to the Vietnamese women. And because of that, Richard Ramirez in his mind said, hey, that this is okay. I hate women just as much as my cousin does. And with a lot of evidence and a lot of incidences that, that occurred with Richard Ramirez, he ended up, again, raping and killing a lot of women in his life. Not much different going on with the, with the Hillside Stranglers. They grew and learned this contempt for women and brought that in and developed the kind of behavior and kind of attitude that they had to shape who they were going to be. He also idolized serial rapist Carl Chessman, the red light bandit. Buna was married four times and his second wife, Mary Castillo, accused him of being physically and sexually abusive. What what crazy is that this is back in the 70s. And so back in the 70s, it was really difficult for a lot of domestic violence cases to actually be tried and and taken care of at the source. You're able to report it, but a lot of times back then, the the culture of how that's just the way it is, women complain and, and women shouldn't say anything, nothing was done. There was no real, what is it, um, documents or uh, or rap sheet that followed Buno around proving that he had these tendencies. I mean, we, we've evolved somewhat from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s to where women are more believable. I mean, you have the, the Me Too movement, which is amazing if it's used appropriately. And, and now domestic violence cases and threats are taken a little more serious. Not as serious as I would expect by now in 2022, but they are being taken a little more serious. I mean, I just heard a story earlier today of a woman who was severely beaten severely beaten by her ex-husband who followed her, stalked her. He had, she had several restraining orders against him and they weren't taken serious. He violated them. He, he said, fuck it, beat the shit out of her and almost killing her. And the cops did nothing. His third wife, Nanette Campino, divorced him after he raped her daughter. During his fourth marriage to Deborah Taylor, he dated a teenager with whom he had two children. What blows my mind is that is that Buno was able to rape the the daughter of Nanette Campino, but he was still not put in in prison. He wasn't put in jail. I, I'm gonna apologize for my voice. I hear my voice is a little raspy right now. That's because I, I just did a two hour radio show. And then during his fourth marriage with to Deborah Taylor, he outside of his marriage dated a teenager who he had two children. He raped a a, a, a young gal and then pretty much raped another, and had two children with her. Uh, that's not okay. That's not okay at all. Bianchi was adopted by local residents. Nicholas Bian- Nicholas Bianchi and Francis Schi- Schiolono, after his mother, excuse me, a teenage prostitute gave him up. So Nic- Nicholas Bianchi and uh, Francis Schiolono was were given up for adoption by by his mother. Obviously, by I mean she was a child prostitute, a teenage prostitute. Definitely had no means to take care of the kids, had no wants, urges at all. This is one of the reasons why abortion should be illegal. It would have been able, it would have been perfectly fine for her to abort it, and we could have avoided, literally avoided the hillside stranglers. I mean, 
proof is in the pudding. As a child, he was a pathological liar and diagnosed with passive-aggressive personality disorder. At one point, he had a desire to become a policeman, but dropped out of a police science and psychology course. Come to find out that he was really not into it. He thought he was, but he wanted to learn how to manipulate and use it towards his advantage. Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buno both lived in Los Angeles where they embarked on their killing spree. Kenneth had grown up in Rochester, New York, but moved across the U.S. to live with his cousin in 1976. When they were short of money, Buno came up with an idea for them to become pimps. You heard that. Hey, I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything. All I want to do is let's just pimp women so they can make the money for us. It was said in different reports that Buno and, and Kenneth had no desire to work. They didn't want to do anything to make legitimate money. So they figured in their mind, let me go ahead and be a pimp. That way I can make money fast, make it easy, and I don't have to worry about it. Well, if you know anything about pimping and prostitution, that's a lot of work to go into it. You have to keep the, the women in the stable. You have to keep them in fear. You have to do a lot of work to make sure that they don't stray away and go away and, and uh, two-time you, right? Right. But these dummies didn't realize that. He told his cousin, he told his cousin to have the idea and to bring in teenage runaways no one would miss and force him to turn tricks. For, if you guys don't know, turning tricks means to go to pick up Johns, to go pick up guys who are interested in buying sex. So uh, Buno said, hey, I have a great idea. Let's get teenage runaways no one would miss and force them into prostitution and we can make a lot of money off of that. Bianchi and Buno first took in two teenage girls named Sebra Hannon and Becky Spears. Then once they had once then once they had them in Buno's home, they locked them up and forced them to sell their bodies. They locked these two teenagers up, forced them into prostitution, and said, "You're never coming out unless it's to go to work." Bianchi and Bruno were brutal. They beat the girls, pimped them, raped them, and beat them even more when they tried to resist. They locked them in the rooms and only let them to leave when they begged for permission. According to several different reports that I read about this, they, uh, they wouldn't even feed them. They would give them the bare minimum of food just so they can still be in fear and, and depend on these two guys, these two, these two fucking jackholes, in order for them to have complete control over these people, over these two teenage girls. They starved them, beat them, raped them mercilessly over and over several times a day. They would just go in and just beat the shit out of them and put the fear of death into these two kids. That's what they were. They were kids. And yes, they turned tricks. They were forced. They were, they, they were threatened. If you run away or if you tell them exactly what is going on, we're going to kill you. So of course, I mean, what is any teenager going to do? You're, you're going to do what you're told because you don't want to die. But at one point, do you understand or believe that, look, maybe being, maybe being dead is a lot better than enduring this punishment that I'm, this torture that I'm enduring now. Yeah, that's at least, I mean, that's what I, but I mean, they, they wouldn't be let out of their room all, what, unless they were given permission. Now, allegedly, I don't know how accurate this is. They were forced to pee in the same room in buckets. I don't know how accurate that is. I'm just going off of reports. If you look up Hillside Strangler, I mean, you fall into a rabbit hole. I think I was on the, the 87th page of Hillside Strangler looking up random information about this. So it may or may not be true. I don't know. I, I was, was there's a lot of fat checking that I did. And I didn't get to that fact check. But this, that's what I read. Allegedly. Allegedly. They were forced to, to uh, urinate and defecate in their own room unless they begged and pleaded and got the shit beat out of them for them to, walk, to get out of the room. 
Sabra enlisted the help of a lawyer named David Wood. Both women made successful escapes. One was saying, I was tired of being of getting beat up, tired of all the threats, and tired of engaging in prostitution. Sabra would tell a jury years later when the men who had tortured her were put on trial for murder. So eventually they, they made their daring escape. They made their hasty getaway, their hasty getaway. And eventually, of course, I mean, we all know the story of the Hillside Stranglers. They, uh, they were arrested. And during trial, she was one of the eyewitnesses who survived, luckily, with their life. I mean, now they have years and years of torture, years and years of therapy that they have to get through. Several, PT, I mean, uh, severe PTSD. But eventually, they were able to share their story and help convict these two fucking degenerates. So the killing starts. Obviously, this is going to be about murders and a serial killer. So we're, we're going to go ahead and start getting into the killer, into the killings. Their first murder came a little after Sabra and Becky's escape. Determined to keep their pimping business alive, Bianchi and Buno paid a prostitute named Deborah Noble for a trick list with the names and numbers of customers in Los Angeles. Noble showed up at their house with another prostitute, Yolanda, 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 Yolanda Washington, and sold them a phony list. Bianchi and, Bianchi and Buno quickly realized this and wanted vengeance. So a trick list is basically a list of frequent flyers of, high, of people who pay a lot of money for, to buy tricks. So their idea was to go and strong arm these individuals for their money. They, they were going to find another bit of, of women. And if they couldn't find the women, they were going to go and set up false meetings with these, with these uh, tricks and rob them for their money. That, that's exactly what was going to happen. But Yolanda and the other gal realized, hey, I know what you're doing. And so they sold them a fake list for, I don't know the exact amount of money. And of course, Bianchi and, and Kenneth were were pissed they were or uh, Bianchi and uh, Buno were pissed and I mean when you have people who are unstable or as it is what's going to happen you know exactly what's going to happen they're going to go get revenge they knew where to find Yolanda who had told him where she often worked Yolanda Washington's body was found naked on a hillside near the Ventura freeway on October 18th 1977 she had been tied up with fabric around the neck wrist and legs and pinned down She'd been violently raped and then her body had been washed clean to remove the evidence and left naked on the hill. A music store owner named Ronald Lemieux was the last person to see her alive. He later testified that two men flashing police badges had pulled her off the street, handcuffed her, and pushed her into the backseat of an unmarked car. Can you imagine just walking, just, just finding these two, this woman naked, brutally raped, washed of all the evidence on, on just random and what's, and what's crazy is that, they, of course, th- th- this isn't the only time, this is the only thing, the only murder that they've done or committed. I mean, this, this is the Hillside Stranglers, not the Hillside Strangler. You know, this isn't the one, one murder type deal. That would become Bianchi and Buno's trademark for most of their murders. They would pretend they were cops, flash a fake badge, and tell a woman she was coming downtown. Then they'd take her to Angelo Buno's upholstery shop and make sure she was never seen again. According to reports, the upholstery shop was the source or the, the epicenter and, and the place, the location where a lot of women were brutally raped, brutally tortured, brutally murdered. And what, what, what blew my mind was that no one ever really found, no one bothered to, to, hey, maybe you should check this upholstery shop out. You would think that after several murders that it would have a, a little stench to it, a funky odor after a while, wouldn't, I mean, that, at least I would, I would think so. On November 1st, 1977, police were called to Alta Terrace Drive in La Crescenta, a neighborhood 12 miles north of downtown Los Angeles, Los Angeles, where the body of a teenage girl was found naked, face up on a parkway in a middle, middle-class residential area. 
The the homeowner had covered her up with a tarp in the early morning hours to prevent the neighborhood children from viewing her on her way to school. Ligature marks were on her neck, wrist, and ankles, indicating to police she was bound and strangled. The body had been dumped, indicating she was killed elsewhere. Detective Salerno also found a small piece of light-colored fluff on her eyelid and saved it for the forensic experts. A coroner's report further detailed that she had been raped and sodomized. Brutally raped and sodomized. I, I just, it's crazy to me that people are so heartless and so cold that they're able just to dump a body out of nowhere. Just, 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 just callously dump a body and leave it there and oh well, all well is end well, let's fucking forget about it and let's go. And then you let someone else find it. I mean, just think about the, the emotional damage that that's now resting upon the person who found the body. And then, you know, at least good for him. He covered the body up, not allowing children to view a dead body, especially the way that it was left. Just brutal, brutal marks. Brutally murdered, naked. The girl who was described as being small and thin, weighing about 90 pounds and appearing to be about 16 years old, was eventually identified as 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller a former student of Hollywood High School, a runaway and occasional sex worker. When, when I started reading about this case, I, I was curious to know why were they targeting sex workers and why were they targeting and why did they target that exact demographic? And what's his name? Uh, Bruno said it earlier. Let's, let's capture and force runaways into sex work. That way nobody misses them and nobody raises any concerns. That was the theme and, and what was repeated over and over, the whole reason why they targeted that, that demographic. They wanted to make sure that, that whoever they found, whoever they murdered, whoever they, they raped would never be heard from, have any suspicion raised, raised about. I mean, you think about it. If a sex worker is raped, even now, if a sex worker, a prostitute is raped, people are like, eh, it's part of the work. You should know that is the danger of the job that you do. Completely ridiculous, by the way. And then if, again, I mean, if, if a prostitute is murdered, people are like, eh, that's the dangers of the job. You shouldn't, you shouldn't worry too much about it or, or raise any suspicion because that's just the work. But that's not right. They're human beings. They're individuals. These people need, need voices. They need to make sure that they're safe. I mean, yeah, it's a questionable line of work, but you know what? Don't kill them while over it. It's ridiculous. Miller was last seen alive on October 31st, 1977, talking to a man driving a large two-tone sedan on Sunset Boulevard next to Carney's. The Stranglers told her they were undercover police officers, handcuffed her, and took her to Buno's auto upholstery shop at 703 East Colorado Street in Glendale, where she was murdered. Christmas. So impersonating an officer is a felony, by the way. And these motherfuckers are just racking up felony after felony after felony in, in the whole, you know, look, we're going to murder these, these young gals because we want to. It's, it's not even, it was just, it was whatever their sick, deranged urges that need to be satiated. That's all it was. It wasn't, I mean, let's continue. A waitress named Lisa Caston turned up next, just five days later, and she was the first woman they killed who wasn't a prostitute. On November 20th, the bodies of Dolly Cepeda, Sonja Johnson, and Christina Weckler all turned up on the same day. Wow. On Sunday, November 13th, 1977, two girls, 12-year-old Dolores Ann Dolly Cepeda and 14-year-old Sonja, Sonja Marie Johnson boarded an RTD bus in front of the Eagle Rock Plaza on Colorado Boulevard and headed home. 
The last time they were seen was getting off the bus on York Boulevard and North Avenue 46 and approaching a two-tone sedan that reportedly had two men inside. Again, they faked as cops, said they were needed for questioning. And of course, I mean, we're, we were taught to trust cops as a young individual, as a young man, as a young woman, as a young child. In school, that's all we were talking about. If there's a trouble, run to a police officer. If you have a problem, run to a fireman. If there's an issue, run to someone who is in authority. And so, of course, these guys gained the trust of these individuals because they said, hey, we're cops. And so you're not going to you're not going to want to break the law. If they tell you, we're going to take you in for questioning, come with us. What are you going to do when we're taught? And, and, and I mean, it's pounded into our head to trust law enforcement. And so these kids, these poor innocent kids, that's all they did was trust law enforcement. And what happened? They ended up dead, raped and murdered. Their two corpses were found by a nine-year-old boy who had been treasure hunting in a trash heap on a hillside near Dodger Stadium on November 20th, 1977. Both of the girls' bodies had already begun to decompose. It was determined that they had been strangled and raped. This is one of the reasons why I said the listener discretion is advised. The manner of death for Weckler was found to be particularly troubling as investigators found that the stranglers had experimented with ejecting her with household surface cleaners. So. I don't know. I mean, we've gotten bleach on our skin. We've gotten ammonia on our skin. And it burns. There's certain chemicals that if you spray on your body, you know, on accident, it burns your skin. Can you imagine getting that shit injected into your veins? Not only are you being raped, the shit beat out of you, you're also getting injected with cleaners that are burning the, your insides. Painful. Painful, on fire, and you can't do anything about it. That's, oh my God. What's crazy is that, that these degenerates were so comfortable and okay with, with experimenting, with injecting cleaners into women's bodies. That's what blows my mind. Women in L.A. learned to live in fear. One woman named Kimberly Martin joined a call girl agency hoping that they'd keep her safe. But instead, the agency accepted a call from two men using a payphone and sent her out to her death. Can you imagine trying to go legitimate? You go into a business that you feel is safe, that they're going to monitor and, and screen their clients. That way they can lower and reduce the risk of murder, rape, or getting abused. And then, I mean, not either, but only to find out that they agreed and booked you a client, clients, who ended up raping and murdering, murdering you anyway. Martin's body was found on December 14th, 1977. She was found nude, strangled, and with electrical burns on her palms. She was 18 years old, and she was the ninth victim of the Hillside Stranglers. The ninth victim of the Hillside Stranglers. That's just, that's just sad. I mean, oh my gosh. Can you imagine just needing to make money, not wanting to have a legitimate job, but you want to sell what you got, you know, sell what your mama gave you. So you say, look, I can make fast money. I can make quick money. All I have to do is have sex, clap cheeks for money. That's it. And then you have all these, these murders happening around you that are targeting mainly sex workers, not all sex workers, but mainly it's sex workers in your area that are getting targeted. So you said, look, I'm not going to stop working. So I definitely need something to kind of put me in a safer, in a safer area and a safer line of clientele. Again, only to find out that the Hillside Stranglers used the agency, the legitimacy of the agency to kill their next victim. Boy, I tell you. 
On November 23rd, 1977, the, bo- the badly decomposed body of a 20-year-old Evelyn Jane King, an aspiring, a- an aspiring actress who had gone missing on November 9th, was discovered in bushes near the Los, Fe- the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. The severity of the decompensi- decompensation... Severity of the decomposition. Oh my, I can't stop. I'm having a problem saying that word. The severity of the decomposing body, the severity of the decomposition, we'll just leave it there, prevented determination as to whether she had been raped or tortured, but she had been strangled like the others. In response, authorities created a task force initially composed of 30 officers from the LAPD and Sheriff Department and the Glendale Police Department to catch the predator, now dubbed the Hillside Strangler. I mean, that would be a, a cause of, of emergency. You have several women, eight, nine women already dead. And it's not going away. It's not getting any better. And so you're going to, you're, you're going to do what you can. You're going to fall, you know, form a task force. That's what cops do. Let's form a task force in order for us to, to get everything together and try to catch this motherfucker. Right, right. There would be little, there would there would be a little more than two months of peace before the killers would strike a tenth and final time, leaving the body of a woman named Cindy Hudspeth in the truck of her in the trunk of her Datsun, inches from the edge of a cliff. Police responded to the scene and discovered the nude body of the car's owner, 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, a student and part-time waitress in the trunk. Her corpse again showed ligature marks, and she had been raped and tortured. She had been strangled, and her body placed in the trunk of her car, which was then pushed off the cliff. Unfortunately, when I read the when I read the article about that, or when I read reports about that, their plan was that the, the car was going to explode, it was going to burn all the evidence, and they weren't going to be traced or marked or followed back to them. It, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense why they would think that, but hey, that's what they thought, and obviously their plan was foiled, and the cops found the thing. Hudspeth's murder had initially been unplanned. Bianchi had arrived at Buno's upholstery shop at closing time on February 16th to discover Hudspeth in the company of Buno discussing upholstery work she wished to do, she wished him to perform on her car. The two men had a private discussion opting to make her their next victim. And so again, according to reports, they went right there when she was still waiting for them, when she was still talking in the upholstery shop. She was she was just sitting there waiting for for what's his name Buno to agree to do the work, and they went to have a private meeting. Came back, raped, tortured, and murdered her. Put her in the trunk of her Datsun and drove it off the cliff. Well, attempted to at least. That I mean, now that we think about it, how crazy that is. You're sitting there just not knowing that the end of your life is rapidly approaching. Just like any other day, you want to get some work done, have a good day, and go home and eat some bonbons and drink a nice, nice cold water, uh, some almond milk or whatever it is. And and now you can't because these two degenerates decided to murder you. That's insane to me. It's it's crazy that the murder was unplanned, but they both agreed to do it right there, pretty much at the at the flip of a coin. Say, hey, we're gonna go ahead and do this. Let's do this. And so they did it. Raped, tortured, and murdered her. Then suddenly, in February 1978, the massacre stopped. Kenneth Bianchi had left L.A. just as the spree finished. He had fallen in love and spent much of his time in L.A. trying to win the hand of a woman named Kelly Boyd in marriage. Boyd never agreed to marry him, but she did give him a son. She gave birth to their body. To, she gave birth to their boy Ryan just days after the Hillside Strangler struck for the final time. Weeks after giving birth, Kelly Boyd broke things off with Bianchi and moved to Washington State 
And in May 1978, Bianchi followed her to Bellingham, Washington. You know, here's a side note. I don't know if it's still true, but when a, a little bit, I think it was like two years that we were living in Washington State. So I, I, my family, I mean, we lived in Washington for about, for not about, we lived there for five years. And when I looked it up, in, a, in the United States, in the good old USA, there are a large number of serial killers that come from Washington State. I mean, it, it, was, it was ridiculous. They said that a lot of the uh, serial killers are from Washington, from the Pacific Northwest. And I, it's not, I'm not saying that I know why, but suicide is also pretty high in Washington State. I mean, it rains all the Even in summer, it rains, it's gloomy, it's, it's cold, and it's a shitty, shitty environment. The sun hardly ever shines. It's miserable. Like right now, I mean, June 16th, 2002, I just read by one of my friends posted that they're hoping for the sun one day. They've only gotten about five hours of sun the beginning of the, of the end of spring and summer. It's only been about five hours and it's raining all day, every day up there. And according to, uh, to professionals, they, uh, uh, it, it does something with their mind, the lack of vitamin D and all this other stuff points to them to where they have a higher rate of depression and want to lash out. I mean, I can understand why. I mean, it's a shitty, shitty, uh, it's a shitty environment. So obviously they get arrested. If not, then, I mean, this would be a cold case file or this would be an unsolved mystery. But where we're going to, they obviously get arrested. So let's read about it. But uh, let me see here. Bianchi seemed insatiable. On January 12th, 1979, Bianchi, Bianchi kidnapped and murdered two young students at Western Washington University. Without Angelo Buno helping him, Bianchi was clumsy about covering his tracks. The police caught him the next day. So according, allegedly, Buno was the brains of, of the outfit. He's the one who was able to orchestrate, figure out exactly how the murders were going to go, what's going to happen, and... and uh, Make sure that all the tracks were covered up so nothing would, would come back to them. Well, Bianchi said, yo, I got this. I will do this on my own. He kidnapped two women from Western State University, murdered them, and obviously left tons of evidence if he was able to get caught. It, it's it's mind-blowing to me that he got away scot-free. Now, I'm not, I'm not vouching for the murders. Don't get me wrong. I'm not vouching for these guys. Or I'm not giving them kudos. But what blows my mind is they got away with 10 murders 10 murders in 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 California but the the thrill and and the 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 thrill the thrill of of killing just got too much for him and he had to kill again He'd killed the two women in Washington the same way he killed those girls in L.A. And when the police pulled him in, they found that he was still carrying a California driver's license. Kenneth Bianchi, Bianchi, they... Kenneth... Oh, my gosh. Hold on. Police quickly realized that Kenny Bianchi was one half of the Hillside Stranglers. One half of the Hillside Strangler. I can't believe I fucked all that up. So... I mean, you, you fuck something up like that, that big. There Obviously, stuff is going to get past you, especially when you kill somebody the same exact way that, that's been targeting and killing people back in the day. And when, when you have a certain MO of doing things, and then you do it again, 
your suspicions are going to be raised and then you're carrying a California ID. Why didn't you get the get the uh, uh, Washington State ID? It doesn't it doesn't take much. It doesn't take long, especially back then. But then you're going to go ahead and do exactly everything that was done in California that you I mean, obviously got away with. You weren't taken in for questioning or anything like that. And then you're going to do it in in Washington, get caught number 1 because you're sloppy at it. And then you're going to identify yourself as one half of those other well, hillside stranglers without identifying yourself as hillside stranglers. <laughs> During questioning, Bianchi told the authorities he hadn't worked alone and named Buno as his accomplice and would later testify against him to avoid the death penalty. Look, man, I'm not saying that for everybody. I'm not giving anybody any ideas. I would never encourage anyone. But if you're going to go commit a crime, make sure, not make sure, but just be well aware that the person you're committing a crime with it's probably going to drop dimes on you and going to turn snitch real quick. They're going to rat you out without a doubt. And you're going it, to, it's going to, it's inevitable. You're going to get snitched out. You're going to, you're, you're going to get told on all because they're going to save their own ass and throw you under the bus. Just be, make sure that you are well aware of that. It, it's going to happen. It's happened throughout time. They, they're stoolies, they're, they're, they're rats, they're informants, they're, it doesn't matter what they're called. They're, they're going to rat you out. They're going to tell on you. Because they're going to save themselves from getting the harsher punishment. In this case, this guy ratted on his cousin so he can avoid the death penalty. He said, look, I'll tell you who the other guy is, but you have to promise me I want it in writing that I'm not going to get the death penalty. And of course, Washington State is going to agree with that because they want, to have, they want all the information from this guy. So the trial and sentencing. Obviously, they were both arrested. There was a call from reports what I read. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bianchi was extradited back to California, and then uh, the uh, Washington State Police informed California what was going on. They put out an APB. Got uh, they had Bruno Bruno arrested, and obviously, I mean, it, it's it's trial time and, and sentencing. Bianchi also tried to convince authorities that he had multiple personality disorder, a claim that was made the day after he'd watched the Sally Field film Sybil about a woman with multiple personalities, but medics saw through his ruse. And then what's funny is that on top of that, even though that's already, I'm just going to add more to that. Bianchi attempted to set up an insanity defense, claiming that he had disassociative identity disorder and that a personality separate from himself committed the murders. Court psychologist, notably Dr. Martin Orn, observed Bianchi and found that he was faking. So Bianchi agreed to bleed guilty and testify against Buno in exchange for leniency. How are you going to try to fake multiple personality disorder when you don't know how to fake multiple personality disorder? For my, for my fellow mental health enthusiasts and people who are still working in the field, we know that it is very difficult to be diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. That is one of the most difficult things for psychiatrists to diagnose. Why? It's just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not common and it's very difficult to, to flat out identify each personality. Now, I believe something along the lines that you have to be identified with three or more separate personalities in order to be diagnosed with personality disorder. Brian, please correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's three or more personalities identifiable separate separate identifiable personalities. I might have that number wrong. It might be a little bit more. It might be a little bit less, but I, I, I remember reading, at least I thought it would be three identifiable separate personalities in order to be diagnosed with true personality disorder. Now, in this case, this fool's going to watch 
this was going to watch a documentary about personality disorder, multiple personality disorder, and disassociative behavior. And he's, he's going to try to pawn this off and run it through and say, hey, this is me, no doubt. <laughs> Good thing Dr. Martin Orrin said, nah, quit fucking around, fool. You, why are you always lying? And they said, nah, man, this dude's saying he's capable and he's fit to stand, to stand trial. At the conclusion of Buno's trial in 1983, presiding judge Ronald M. George, who later became chief justice of the California Supreme Court, stated during sentence saying, quote, I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty in this case where it, with, where it within my power to do so. Ironically, although these two defendants utilized almost every form of legalized execution against their victims, the defendants have escaped any form of capital punishment. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Boy, I tell you, how are you going to escape capital punishment? See, I said it over and over and over, and I'm going to say it over and over again. If you're caught guilty without a reasonable doubt, with undeniable, unrefutable evidence, you should, and you've committed atrocities like like the Hillside Stranglers committed, you should automatically get a one-way ticket, first-class pass, do not, do not, uh, I mean, skip the line, do not do anything except head directly to the front standing of death row. And you should be number one on the list, next day executed without a doubt, right? Right. We need to get these monsters off of the face of the earth. Bottom line. Bianchi is serving a life sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Buno died of a heart attack on September 21st, 2002 at Partria State Prison in California, where he also was serving a life sentence. It sucks that that they were able to live out some sort of a life, some sort of, of an ending to their brutality. These degenerates, they, they don't deserve this shit. And yes, I am one-sided. I, I do have a strong opinion about murders, and you should too. The Hillside Stranglers were, were nothing but degenerates. Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this show up. This was a quick episode that I wanted to get out there. I thought I was going to have way more information, but it, it wasn't as much as I, th- I thought it was going to be. It's all, it, all the websites that I looked were just repeating over and over what I already, where I already put. I just highlighted the most, most uh, pertinent information and put it on the show. During two years, during the two years Bianchi was, was awaiting trial, he forged a relationship with an actress and playwright called Veronica Compton. Obsessed with serial killers, she sent him a screenplay called The, Mulet, the Mutilated Cutter about a female serial killer. killer. Veronica became so fixated with Bianchi that he convinced her to go out and perform a copycat killing. He wanted it, he wanted it, to look like the Hillside Strangler was still at large. Now, let me read that part to you again, okay? Because I want you guys to listen to this before I read off the second part or, or the rest of this, of this information that I have for you. Veronica became so fixated with Bianchi that Bianchi convinced Veronica to go out and perform a copycat killing. Bianchi wanted it to look as if the Hillside Strangler was still at large, okay? Okay, so remember, this guy wasn't the brightest bulb in the in the joint. This dude wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. This guy was the dullest rock at the bottom of the ocean, and nobody knew exactly how dumb. Pretty much that there was no points on this guy at all. Slipping her a rubber glove full of a semen during a prison visit, Bianchi persuaded Veronica to lure to lure a woman back to a ho- to a motel room and strangle her. However, the woman fought back, the police were called, and Veronica was arrested. Let me, let me read that without stumbling. 
slipping her a rubber glove full of his semen during a prison visit, Bianchi persuaded Veronica to lure a woman back to a motel room and strangle her. However, the woman fought back, the police were called, and Veronica was arrested. Okay, number one. If you're going to frame someone into believing, or you're going to throw the scent off of someone, making it seem like the, 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 the killer is still at large, why the fuck would you give her a glove of your DNA? You want her to plant the DNA, your DNA, your semen, at the scene of the crime so that you can be charged with that murder as well. And on top of that, you're going to sit there and think, this is a bright idea. I have the greatest, most foolproof plan to get me off and the hillside strangle is still at large. I'm going to get, a, get away with murder. No one will suspect it's me. And the brightest idea you had was give this woman your sperm, your DNA that they already have on file and plant it at the scene of a crime proving that it was you again. Boy, I t- this... Oh my gosh. This is why schooling and education needs to be tougher and, and a lot more informative than what we have now, <laughs> especially back in the seventies and the eighties. Come on now, give your DNA to someone so they can plan it at the scene of the crime. How does that even make sense guy? How are you even going to get out of the crime that you put your DNA all over? Oh, I tell you, of course. I mean, these guys are all, all this, this guy is, uh, he was up for probation in 2010 or 2015, I think it was. It was denied. He's also up for probation again or parole in 2024, I think I read. And of course, that's going to be denied. You're not going to leave someone who's been in prison for the entire life. Uh, and you're just not going to let them go free. Bottom line is, look, check it out. These motherfuckers were degenerates. They were three layers of assholes. And I'm really glad that they got caught. Unfortunately, they had to take down... 12 victims in order for them to get caught. I mean, I'm glad they were. It's, it's always good for, for killers to make mistakes. And in this case, they made a mistake. And I'm very happy about that. I'm glad that the guy was a snitch and didn't go down with the boat and say, look, I did it. It was all me, nobody else. And then they, they let another dangerous individual run the streets. I'm very happy that that dude turned rat. We're going to end the show there. Stay tuned for, let me see here. Or a little special treat that I have. Again, I, I try to I try to do the mostest for the hostess. You know what I mean? Other than that, stay tuned. Uh, Patreon will be released next week. I ran out of time today. I, I just, uh, a whole lot of things were stacked up against me. Uh, I will have it for next weekend, 100%. I will have a good Patreon episode. I already have something in mind. I'm excited. Stay tuned next week. I will have another episode on my regular podcast. And let me see here. Other than that, that's pretty much I it. Re- oh, I, for those of you who follow me on Podbean, I will no longer be on Podbean. I'm switching over to Red Circle. It's just the better move for me. I'm, I don't utilize all of the, the the amenities that Podbean offers, so I'm just jumping on my over to jumping over to Red Circle. So after today, you won't you will no longer be able to leave me messages or anything on Podbean. So it's not that a big deal. I still have my my Instagram Graveyard Grumbler Podcast on Instagram, and you can still email me at Graveyard Grumbler. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Let me see here. Patreon is still active and live. I have one tier, $5 for everyone, forever and ever and ever. It will never change. I will always have $5 tier, one tier forever. It's never going to go up at all, ever. Other than that, nothing else to announce. I appreciate it, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you so much. And as always, 
Good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. I, I would like to ask you, because we seek to understand uh, killing and the reasons for it, if you have murdered anybody. If you, I really have no memory of having murdered anybody. Uh, even to satisfy other person's allegations at one time, I attempted to think about what it might feel like, and I have never been able to do that. Are you able to uh, talk about any conversations you might have had with Mr. Bono that would give us some understanding of these murders in California? Uh, I've never really had any substantial recollections of any conversations regarding Mr. Bono. I can't give you anything specific. Uh, there were times under extreme pressure by the police that I made up certain conversations to not get punished for no retaliation so they wouldn't retaliate. However, those are not credible. Those are, were made up. Uh, he, when he was first picked up, he came not to remember certain things, but he really remembered a lot of details. Uh, his loss of memory uh, became worse when he was trying to play the multiple personality. And at that point, he came to have no memory about what he did during the multiple personality episodes when he was Steve and so on. Uh, however, as soon as he gave up that defense, he remembered all the details. He told the police exactly where things were committed. Uh, he described all kinds of details which he knew. Now, the trial being over, all of a sudden he again forgets. He forgets everything that he's done that's been wrong. He forgets even the things which he claimed earlier, that he had a bad childhood, that his mother beat him, uh, that uh, he killed people, that he uh, had cons where he um, ran prostitutes with Bono, uh, that he uh, stole from his cousin, that he stole from the people who hired him to guard his store, and so on, all kinds of things. So now he seems everything is great, you know. Uh, and he looks like the all-American boy. How would you evaluate the motives for the killing? So what do you think brought about the killing? For the record, to just further explain what you're mentioning here, I had access to all the police re reports and photos as a matter of discovery uh, prior weeks prior to the <coughs> hypnosis sessions. Based upon my extensive reading of these reports, my literally absorbing these reports, to find out what was happening. Um, I feel that the, motiv the motivation may have been for whoever committed these crimes, uh, may have been simply to remove evidence, simply to, to uh, perhaps crimes of passion, uh, perhaps uh, the killings occurred to get rid of potential witnesses, uh, that's the best I could surmise from what, everything I've read. When he was already in Los Angeles, he uh, persuaded uh, Veronica Compton, whom he hadn't known before, to go out and actually murder someone. She tried to murder someone in the style of the Hillside Strangler, so as to make it appear that Bianchi wasn't the right person. 
think there were there was uh, a strong sexual motive in those murders. Uh, I don't know. Uh, thinking back on the autopsy reports that I saw and other reports, it does appear that some of the women were sexually molested. Uh, the sexual psychopath typically is not insane at all. He knows what he's doing. Uh, the difference is that uh, he murders for sexual gratification. And it's just as insane as a bank robber who steals, uh, robs banks because he feels he should have the money. Now, that isn't allowed. Uh, it isn't allowed that if you find yourself drawn to an attractive woman, that you go ahead and rape her. I mean, that's not, uh, that's against the law, against any civilized um, uh, society. Now, the sexual psychopath is someone who gives in to this impulse, which many people might be attracted, but they don't act on it. And the sexual psychopath not only acts on it, but once it has gone to the point where he kills, he will kill repeatedly and uh, doesn't tend to stop this behavior. If you catch him and incarcerate him, when he'll be a model prisoner. When he gets out, he'll kill again. Uh, Mr. Bianchi, am I correct that you have been accused of uh, committing 12 murders altogether, including California and the state of Washington? No, sir, it's um, seven. Seven? And you plea bargained as guilty to a certain number of murders, is that correct? Yes, I plea bargained to uh, primarily and basically and pretty much solely escape the death penalty. The death penalty was very much a reality. How many murders were involved in those charges that you plea bargained? Seven. What punishment do you think is appropriate for Mr. Bianchi? I don't think it's an issue of punishment. I don't know that there's any punishment which is appropriate for somebody who kills a dozen people in the most vicious way. I don't know how, what is the right punishment, but really that's quite secondary from my point of view to what is going to happen whether the man stays away from society. That's the danger. And not because he's not enough punished or too much punished. The issue is you let somebody like that free because his odds of doing it again are very high. I don't believe, as a Christian now, that it's right for even society to take another person's life. Although society hires people to do, push the button, or pull the cord or whatever, it's still murder, still killing. Which punishment do you think would be most appropriate for murder? I think it should be life in prison. Without parole or? With Without parole. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, there are rare times when a person is so rehabilitated, so completely, especially a younger person who commits a murder when they're very young, there's a lot of room for growth. Mm -hmm. If there is then a fully exhibited rehabilitation without any question, then it's a different story. Mm -hmm. He should have an opportunity to, to perhaps re-enter society. Mm -hmm primarily life without parole. The prisoner stays the same. And in the case of Bianchi, he is a consummate confidence man. And he is trained up by a variety of parole boards 
to give the right appearance of being rehabilitated. And unfortunately, parole boards are very much concerned about remorse and about whether punishment has been enough. Whereas the real issue you have to ask about this kind of person is what's going to happen if you let him out? And that's a very different issue. Uh, no matter how much remorse he's had, he's still likely to kill again. Are you advocating no parole clauses in the case of serial murderers who are convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment? Yes, I think that that has to be very seriously considered because these people uh, have their full-time profession getting out. And whereas parole boards change over time, and they don't have a memory in a sense, each time somebody like this gets to a parole board, he learns more. He learns better how to present himself. And it is not surprising that a consummate con artist is eventually able to con a parole board, particularly since the warden is tremendously impressed with his behavior. The chaplain is impressed with his behavior. He is very helpful to a lot of people. And it is understandable why a parole board might get taken in by them. Your last degree uh, was a high school diploma, is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And you're now working towards a uh, community college degree. That's correct. I am now currently, uh, as of the end of this quarter, will have 70 credits mm -hmm. from Walla Walla Community College. Mm -hmm. And I've also been accepted at two other colleges to continue on for a bachelor's degree. What do you think you'll major in? Well, uh, I'll probably major in religion. Both colleges are Christian colleges, and uh, they both, the major will be in religion. Tell me about your current religious beliefs and how they are the same or different from what your beliefs were, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago. Very much different. Uh, aside from my changing faiths, even, I'm a Christian now. Mm -hmm. um, I really don't care if anybody on the outside doesn't believe that it's not important. The Lord knows that. Mm -hmm. I was baptized back in April of 85. And besides being baptized, I'm also a Seventh-day Adventist now, rather than a Catholic, and I practice my faith actively. How do you know that he's not, in fact, rehabilitated now? Why do you think he's conning now when uh, he shows that he can work with the chaplain and be a good prisoner and uh, that he is genuinely trying to behave in the most appropriate way? I don't doubt that he's genuinely trying to behave most appropriately. He's a model prisoner. That's characteristic of the group. They're wonderful in prison. Everybody thinks they're great. They work for the chaplain. The warden thinks they're great. The social workers think they're great. And they act as if they're rehabilitated. That doesn't mean they are. It is yet another con. And he's very good at it. To even begin to try and live with myself, I have to take responsibility for what I've done. And I have to do everything I can to get Angela Bono and to devote my entire life to do everything I possibly can to give my life so that nobody else will hopefully follow my, will hopefully won't follow my footsteps. First, uh, he played his act for the psychiatrist. Uh, but, uh, you know, when this didn't work, then he played his act for the court in Washington where he 
repented and cried and so forth. Um, but of course, he was set up to do that. And as soon as he left the court, uh, he was seen laughing and having a great time. What things do you fear the most? Right now, in the immediate sense, what I fear the most is the administration that holds me as a prisoner. It's just a very scary thing to be in a bureaucracy like this and to see the way it really functions, how it's just right on the edge of, of you really could be in a lot of trouble. Guys have been killed because they've been moved from one place to another because of... of... Now, I'm not saying the administration is trying to do harm to anybody. Basically, I, I would imagine they don't, but it just has its imperfections enough that it's very scary. I'm very much afraid of it. If you had to live your life over again, what things would you change? I really wouldn't change anything. You know, I had a good childhood, and uh, I really wouldn't change anything. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Graveyard Grumbler Graveyard Podcast. Grumbler.